if we're seeing representations on screen that are not truly indicative of the the truth as we live it that can be very damaging especially when these substandard representations kind of enter the public consciousness and people deem them as the norm or the truth welcome to solving suicide the podcast on a mission to deepen understanding share solutions and zero the death rate I'm your host, Alice Lyons, and having experienced suicidal feelings in my adolescence and early 20s, I'm passionate about creating spaces where we can explore suicidality and prevention together with bravery, curiosity, and maybe a bit of awkwardness as well. Because conversations like this are never easy, but they're too important not to have. Let's do this. This episode is brought to you by Dark Coffee, getting your work and well-being working better together. Because when you feel great, you'll do great things. Hello lovely, welcome back to Solving Suicide and first and foremost I'd like to apologise for the quality of my voice today. I'm just at the end of a week-long cold, well I hope I'm at the end. I'm uh, definitely a lot further along and a lot phlegmier than I used to be so hopefully we're coming out the tail end but my condolences and my well wishes to you if you are also suffering from this horrible beastie, flu, virus, whatever that's going around at this time of year. Today I wanted to approach a topic which has ruffled my feathers for more years than I care to to talk about and that's the representation of suicide in popular culture. This is something that has bothered me since way 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 before I worked in suicide prevention or I started speaking about suicidality or anything like that. This harks back right to my early 20s when I was experiencing suicidality on a sort of semi-regular basis and it used to really bother me. I was a media studies student. I studied media studies at university, but prior to that, I also studied it in college. So from the age of like 17, 18, I was very highly attuned to looking at pieces of media and critiquing them and seeing what kind of messages we could take from them. And one thing that really aggravated me when I was suicidal, but even before I sort of attached the idea of suicidality to anything I was feeling, was the representation of suicide in popular culture, particularly in things like soaps and films. It always struck me that it was so dramatised and so, and like obviously death is a scary thing and the idea of killing yourself can be extremely challenging for people and quite abrasive and obviously a very striking concept for a lot of reasons. But even at a very young age, I realised that the representation that we see in popular culture is it's one take on suicidality, but it's not fully representative. And I certainly didn't see myself represented in any of the on-screen representations that I saw. One of the problems that we have with suicidality in general life at the moment, in society overall, is that it's very scary to a lot of people. It's highly stigmatised, it's avoided in a lot of conversations, and people don't really know how to approach it as a topic. And I believe one of the fastest ways that we could combat this is to take these conversations mainstream, which is it's one of the biggest reasons I'm doing what I'm doing with Solving Suicide. I think the more we can talk about suicidality comfortably and in a kind of accessible way, the more or the closer we'll get towards prevention, because prevention doesn't start at the point of an intervention when someone is, is in crisis and kind of acting at the point of suicide. It happens a long time before that. And if we can have conversations out in society, in our families, in our friendship groups, it will just get us further faster in terms of understanding and awareness and getting people help and support when they need it, all these kind of things. So conversations literally save lives. So one of the easiest ways that we could start having these conversations is actually through entertainment. Why is that? 
it's because as humans for some reason it's something to do with our biology i have no idea on the specifics of it if i'm completely honest but one of the ways that we learn incredibly well we learn about the world is through storytelling storytelling has been with us since the dawn of time as far as we can tell since we started you know standing on two legs and drawing pictures on on the inside of cave walls storytelling has been passed down from generation to generation and it's one of the ways that we teach each other about the world and about ourselves and about each other we as humans learn through storytelling it's an incredibly powerful tool that we have at our disposal and this is true whether it's in sort of friendship groups and small group dynamics but increasingly in the modern world it comes through the kind of content that we consume so the things we see on social media the things we see on websites and the things we see in mass media and popular culture so this is interesting because the mass media have an incredible amount of power over us increasingly we're kind of we're kind of taking the power back we're kind of using social media and stuff to tell our own stories increasingly we're all becoming kind of content creators in our own right and increasingly which is overall a positive thing but mass media with all the power of production they have behind them you know things like um commercial tv terrestrial tv and increasingly streaming services like netflix they all have an incredible presence in our lives and because of the power of storytelling and the ability of the representation that they show they have an amount of influence over how we think and how we feel how we understand the world because they're telling us these stories that we're consuming it enters into our kind of subconscious and we feel that we're learning about the world and how it truly is obviously a lot of us understand that you know people have an angle and even documentaries and stuff people are producing these stories and telling us you know from a certain angle and a certain perspective but even so subconsciously we're absorbing these messages and we're internalizing what the producers are telling us through the stories this can be incredibly problematic because what you can have is a bunch of representations that are showing up as innocuous and we think oh it's just a story it doesn't mean anything but the more and more we're shown a representation of a thing the more it's presented to us as a truth the more likely we are to believe it and internalize it even if you know day to day we don't think a particular representation is true and this is why people are increasingly asking for positive representations of gay characters non-binary characters people want better representation of different races and genders and all sorts of people are, are wanting more representation on tv that reflects the experience that is true for them rather than someone else's opinion of what it is like to be them and speaking as someone who's felt suicidal at various points in my life one of the things that really upsets me is the representation of suicidality in popular culture so in films and tv particularly I'm going to discuss this today with particular reference to the classic Christmas film It's a Wonderful Life and I'm going to discuss some of the positive representation featured in the exploration of suicide in It's a Wonderful Life versus some of the negative things and it's kind of it's really interesting because when I sat down to record this initially I was going to explain this as a positive portrayal of suicidality and I'll go into that obviously in just a moment but the more I think about it and the more I was talking about it the more I realized actually there are some really negative connotations featured here so we're going to look at it from both sides and kind of pick it apart a little bit and hopefully it's going to give you some food for thought and I'm kind of building my case for why it's important to think about the way that we talk about suicide and the way that we approach it because the things we say and the the words that we use and the representations and you know not all of us are media producers here we, we don't have control over the things that we see but we all have the capacity to question the things that we see 
and to not accept it at face value. We all have that critical part of our brain where we can look at a text, be be it a film, TV show, whatever, and say, okay, that's their version of events, but we don't have to accept that as the truth. And maybe there's another part to this story that isn't being shown and we need to think about. And we can kind of critique things as we're watching them. And through doing this, we're building our awareness. And, you know, we need to expand our awareness of any kind of topic, but particularly when it comes to suicide, we can't just rely on these media representations and kind of accept it as the truth. Because as with most things, it's so much more complicated than that. And we need to get our information from a variety of sources, be that real life accounts, um, you know, content that you might see from individuals on the internet, lived experience speakers, there's a whole range of resources that we can tap into. And as this podcast expands, and I get more specialists on to talk about their areas of specialism, obviously I'll be able to share a lot more resources with you as we go on. But let's dive into mass media representation by looking at It's a Wonderful Life today. So what is It's a Wonderful Life? It's a Wonderful Life is an absolute classic Christmas film, which I actually only watched for the first time a few years ago. My dad has been trying to make me watch it, (laughs) and I say make me watch it, genuinely make me watch it for, I don't know, maybe like eight or nine years, because it's one of if not his favourite film. And he's always been really attached to it, but he could never articulate why. He was just like, oh, it's a classic, it's a classic, watch it. And I was like, oh, no, I don't really want to, even though I quite like old films and black and white films and all the rest of it. I think it was just one of those rebellious, you know, kid things where you're like, oh, if my parents really like it, it must be lame, so I'm not going to watch it. But I finally sat down and watched it with him a few years ago, and I cried my heart out because it was so poignant and it was so it really touched a nerve with me because of some of the subjects that it explores. And also it's just told in like a ridiculously kind of fluffy and wholesome and beautiful way. And the music swells at the end and it was, ah, it comes into a crescendo at the end and it's beautiful. But anyway, we're critiquing it today. <laughs> we're going to tear this boy apart. But brief overview and spoiler alerts ahead. So if you haven't seen this film that's been around for however many years, uh, obviously tune out, go watch it, come back, we'll discuss. But brief overview is there's a guy called George and he's the main protagonist in the film and we follow his life from the time that he's a young lad right the way through to being a grown-up and he lives in this place called Bedford Falls surrounded by friends and family and his mission in life is to get out of this small town, go and see the world. He's got loads of big dreams, loads of ambition, he's got loads of energy and get up and go and through a series of unfortunate events, he just finds himself unable to leave. He's got ties, he wants to save his family business, he wants to support his family, and he just never finds himself able to leave town and pursue his dreams. So it gets to the crescendo of the film, which actually, by the time we have the dramatic turn, it's about 20 minutes before the end of the film. It's really weird. The majority of this film is just him living his life and getting a series of knockbacks as he perceives them. And the crescendo comes or the the kind of dramatic height of the film comes when George is standing on a bridge, he's at the end of his tether and he's wanting to throw himself into the water below the bridge and he's sort of loudly proclaiming that he's going to do it and just before he goes to jump he sees someone else enter the water, another man, and he starts flailing around in the water and he goes, oh my god, I'm going to help you. So he saves him and it turns out to be an angel called Clarence and Clarence is George's guardian angel and he says he's there to um, to save him and if he saves him Clarence will get his wings and he'll be like an official angel so there's something in it for Clarence um, but he's his job is basically to rehabilitate George and get him on the straight and narrow and to convince him that his life is worth living and that's how George has his emotional turnaround. Now 
for me, there are lots of positives about the way that George's suicide is portrayed. And I want to go into those first. First of all, I think it comes at a really odd point in the film in terms of storytelling structure. Like it is very, very far through the film. And you're like, where is this film going? I don't understand. So that placement is kind of strange. But the good thing about this is that we follow George really closely over an extended amount of time. So we know him right from the time that he's a little boy, as he gets married, as he has his kids, as things start falling apart. And we see and we follow him through all these gradual knockbacks. It's not a case of he wakes up one day and he wants to die. For me, that kind of immediate decision of like, I'm going to jump off a bridge, that dramatic kind of representation of suicide is all too prevalent in popular culture. If you think about soap operas, if you think about a lot of the popular culture representations of suicide you've seen, you might have found that it kind of came out of nowhere or it was kind of out of character for the person or it came at a moment of like, oh God, I just can't take it anymore. It's just, it's something big that makes them snap. Whereas I think it's good that we follow George over a series of years and years and years. And, you know, in the course of the film, it's a couple of hours in and we followed him this whole time. So we can understand how this growing resentment has developed over the course of years and he's had a knockback and another one and another one and we as the audience feel his frustration we feel his disappointment and we can see himself putting himself out there for other people constantly and for me this is a really good thing because like i say too often we see representations of suicide in popular culture that seem to come as a bolt out of the blue and it's almost just used as a a really basic narrative device as showing oh this person wants to make a change and they want something immediate to happen and it's always i mean thinking about soaps off the top of my head i think it's just used as a really cheap tactic for like oh we need to shake things up what can we do oh let's make so and so kill themselves and that sensationalization and stuff it's it's true to life in a way because people do um kill themselves on a seemingly on a whim sometimes and it seems to come out of nowhere so that is true but the fact that it's so sensationalised and so gratuitous as well, it's often very graphic, the the way that we see suicides happen. It's something very sleazy about it almost. It's almost like suicide is being used for the spectacle of it rather than the kind of character development and the understanding of a character and the understanding of the complexity of the thinking that often goes into a suicide attempt. Whereas in It's a Wonderful Life, I think we get to know that over a long period of time because we know what George has gone through. We know how he's suffered and his perception of events. So we really, we sort of understand his thinking by the time we get there, whether we realise it or not. We're like, actually, I get where he's coming from because he's had a <laughs> he's had a really hard time of it. And particularly from his point of view. Another thing I like about it is that all the way through, he's trying to find solutions all the time. He's trying to find a way out of particularly financial difficulties. And I think that's a really good thing for them to focus on in the course of the film, because I you know, thinking off the top of my head anecdotally at people I know that have made suicide attempts, very often a common theme between all of them will be money issues or money worries because it feels so insurmountable sometimes depending on the circumstances that they're in. But often they feel like I'm in this really difficult financial situation. I can't see an immediate answer to it. Maybe there's a lot of money involved, tens of thousands. Maybe there are businesses involved. Maybe there are properties involved. And that can be a really common trigger for people. So I like that they explored that. And George is involved in a building society or a, like a family bank or something. I always got a bit confused about his role in that that business. But the whole thing is very focused on money. Like that's a really key theme that's talked about a lot in the film is people's attention on money. And we'll come back to that in the negative pile of this analysis very shortly. 
But the fact that that plays into his decision, I think is a very good feature to have. It's very true to life, very realistic, and it's something that we should all be aware of. Another contributing factor that I think was really well portrayed was the fact that George is living his life for other people. We see it throughout the film. He's he's put in a situation where it's a choice between him and what he wants to do and the greater good and what's better for other people. And oh, this is... <laughs> I've just got my head in my hands thinking about, again, the number of people that I've seen this affect. So many people... We explored this actually in the interview episode I did with Chris O'Connell. He was talking about this being a really big contributing factor to his suicide attempt in that he felt like he was living his life for other people. So from the outside, it looked like all was good and he was successful and he had the house and the family and everything was all going well. But he did, he felt like a stranger in his own life and he didn't feel connected to these things because he was living to sort of, you know, look good in front of other people or to help other people. And he wasn't thinking enough about himself and he wasn't connecting to what was really important to him. And I think that's a really interesting theme that was explored in the film. Quite often we see that kind of theme, that caregiver personality given to women in film. We're more used to seeing that. But the fact that it was put on the man and he's shown to be like... He's a very pivotal member of his community. He's a leader in business. He's a leader in his family. And he does a lot of things to like support other people in various different levels. And I thought that was, that was a really well portrayed theme that was done in a very good way. And we really like George for that. We love his ability to care for other people. But I think it highlights that very important line that we all have to walk between being a supporter and actually supporting ourselves. It highlights the importance of all of us being able to look after ourselves and prioritise our own well-being, our own desires in life, our needs as well. Like, are our basic needs being met? Because if not, that can be a really key contributing factor to poor mental health. I talk about this again in um, one of the Mind Over Grind episodes that I've done recently. I think it was episode 97, I want to say, 96 or 97. I did an interview with a lady called Dr. Sarah Golding and it's called Supporting the Supporters or Why We Need to Support the Supporters. And she goes into a lot of detail about this, about how those of us who have positions of responsibility or are caregivers, we're very much at risk of burning out at the very least because so much of our emotional and kind of physical energy is put into looking after other people. And it's a beautiful thing and it's such a wonderful skill and quality to have, but it can also be very dangerous. So I like that that was shown as a contributing factor to his um, almost like unravelling towards the suicide attempt. Another thing that I absolutely love after the attempt, which kind of evaporates, as soon as he sees Clarence go in the water, he, he rescues him and you know, that bridge was shown to be very ineffective as a suicide location anyway, but <laughs> I digress. Once he rescues Clarence from the water, they go and have a conversation. I think there's a guy at the end of the bridge who has like a little hut, so they go and dry off in there. Um, what he was doing and why he wasn't monitoring the bridge, I don't know, because he seemed to be like a watchman, but again, I digress. <laughs> there are so many loopholes now I think about it. But when they go to dry off, Clarence, <laughs> the conversation he has with Clarence is fantastic because they discuss the suicide attempt in such black and white forthright terms and this is so progressive for a film of the day when was this filmed i should have looked at this before i started recording 1946 google tells me so this film was filmed in 1946 and in the script it features two men having a conversation about one of them attempting suicide and 
Clarence is so matter of fact about it. He's like, I had to jump in the water. I had to save you. And he was like, no, I jumped in the water to save you. And he's like, no, George, I jumped in the water because I knew you were trying to kill yourself and I was here to stop you. So they just have this very forthright conversation and the, the bridge watchman guy is just listening on like, what in God's name are these guys talking about? And, um, you know, the reason Clarence is so cavalier about the whole thing is because he's an angel and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm your guardian angel. I've been sent here to protect you and stuff. So to him, this is nothing out of the ordinary. So in the context of that dynamic, the fact that he's a guardian angel, obviously suicide is not a big deal to him because he would have seen all sorts of deaths in heaven. It's really, contextually speaking, for him, it's not going to be out of the ordinary or out of the blue or anything like that. So the fact that he's so casual about it makes sense in that context. But for us as viewers of the film, I just think it's striking just how forthright they are. And he's like, you know, you were going to kill yourself. And his tone of voice is so casual. And it's actually really, it's really disarming. And it's really lovely in a way how casual he's being about it. There's no judgment there. There's no, I can't believe you're going to do that. Why would you ever do that? It's non-judgmental. And it's just, you know, this was going to happen. I had to stop you. And I think that's something we can take away from that. Because when we're having conversations with people who are suicidal, or who talked to us about previous attempts, I think the more we can normalise it and just say, look, I'm really sorry you went through this, but like, let's have a conversation about it. The more we can neutralise that conversation, the better we'll all be because it just makes it that much more accessible and acceptable as a conversation topic. And that can help us unpack it, normalise it, take some of the judgement out of it. All of these things help us move towards a more progressive understanding society that can help us you know, ultimately this can help reduce suicides for us to take that kind of approach because it helps people to understand that they can talk about it at various stages of the thinking process or, you know, considering making an attempt. The more comfortable we get talking about these things, the more we'll actually move towards prevention. So now to move into the negatives. For a start, what I just said about Clarence, we could read in two different ways. One is that, oh, it's progressive and it's great that we're talking about suicide so casually. But like I said, it's in the context of him being an angel and kind of like a, another worldly force. So this isn't two ordinary men having an ordinary conversation. It's automatically framed as being something extraordinary, otherworldly, weird. So it's almost portrayed as like, this wouldn't happen in real life. And it's only because he's supernatural that we can have this conversation. What they go on to do is Clarence shows George He's, he's trying to talk him around and say, you know, your life is worth living and stuff. But rather than lecture him, this is another good point, actually. He doesn't try to lecture him. He tries to get George to understand for himself or to um, decide for himself that his life is worth living. And he doesn't do that through saying, you know, his job is to save George. So he really wants that. But he empowers him to make that decision by himself. And the way that he does that is to show him what life would be like, hypothetically, for everybody else he knows and loves if he had never existed. So not if he'd have died, but if he had never existed in the first place. So they enter this like new parallel universe um, where you see some of the highlights of the film play out from a different perspective. And that's from the perspective of George not existing. Again, I actually think this is a positive as well. I have to add this in. So many people, myself included, when we've thought through the idea of suicide, we've reached that point for ourselves where we think, oh, I really don't want to die by suicide. I don't want to kill myself because that would mean people grieving. It would mean people being upset. I would so much prefer it if I just never existed. I remember that being such a tangible thought that I had many, many times. And so again, I like that they kind of explored this as a concept and they showed it in such a visual way 
because it is so relatable for those of us that have felt suicidal like a lot of us will have felt this way so it's interesting to see it play out in real life um <laughs> but kind of frustrating as well because obviously none of us are in the situation where this is going to happen to us and it's like oh yeah i could just agree to that parallel universe let's go with that and i just evaporate into nothingness it's never going to happen like that so it's it's kind of a good and a bad thing it's good that they explore it it's good that the representation is there for suicidal people to say like oh i, I recognize this thought but it's also a bad thing because it's kind of it's kind of rubbing salt in the wound a little bit of like yeah well you can't have that that's not an option for you so if you kill yourself it's, it's going to cause harm so this is the biggest negative of the film for me is that it it doesn't directly judge George I don't think like Clarence particularly in the language that's used he's never said he from memory I haven't watched it for a year <laughs> so from memory I can't remember him saying you can't do this to your friends and family everyone would miss you too much I don't think there's that judgmental tone but in showing him how much the world falls apart without him and how pivotal he is it actually from my understanding and my interpretation it actually puts a lot of pressure on George because he's going back into his life with the understanding of like these guys need me they absolutely need me for the town to thrive for all these people to be happy they need me to exist otherwise everything falls apart and for me that's just very problematic <laughs> that is putting a lot of responsibility on one person's shoulders especially considering this is the whole town whole town we're talking about this isn't like a family unit an entire town and all of their livelihoods seem bound up in this one guy because he's very good at standing up to the big bully guy in town, the big monopoly man that comes in and tries to take over and stuff. And it's it's portrayed as like, if he doesn't do this thing, nobody can. And yeah, it's not true to life. I think that's, um, that's a really highly pressured way to live your life. So say in real life, if this had all played out, you know, hypothetically, or even in the context of the film, if this all played out and he went back to his life, how long would it be before he felt suicidal again and felt that pressure again and felt actually I feel compelled to stay because everybody else needs me and again it comes back to living his life for other people he wouldn't be making that decision for himself to stay alive because he has int intrinsic value and he intrinsically wants to stay alive he'd be doing it purely for other people and this is a really really negative narrative that gets kind of rolled out when we're talking about suicide prevention sometimes people can say oh you know what would so and so do if you died think about your wife think about your kids think about your family and friends and it's like on the one hand that can be a very compelling reason to stay alive but deeper than that we need to encourage people to have that sense of self-worth and self self-value i guess where they want to stay alive for their own benefit because the family and friends argument it will get you so far it can stop a, a lot of attempts absolutely but can it really encourage you to live a full and a happy life i don't know i think it can start you on that journey but i think more to the point the more of us feel a deep intrinsic sense of our own self-worth the more of us will feel content to live our lives that's a that is a very broad sweeping brush i'm stroking us all with there but i do believe it to be true i do believe that the difficult process of working on ourselves and our self-worth is a longer term solution to feelings of suicidality than trying to live our lives for other people and that's you know my experience from feeling suicidal myself and through conversations that i've had with other people who've been through the same is i'm not going to go as far as saying it's universal but i will say it's a strong theme that's come through so i do feel to a large extent that george was guilted into staying alive because he wanted to 
kind of save his friends and family. He's like, no, this isn't acceptable for life to play out like this. They need me. I need to go back and I need to be grateful for everything. And it's lovely to show that he has that newfound appreciation for everything. We see him like running through the streets, waving to everything, like the old and broken crumbling buildings and saying hello to his crappy life. And like, he has this renewed sense of optimism that everything's going to be okay. He doesn't know how, but everything is going to be okay. And the biggest, most pressing issue that he has is with money. And herein lies the biggest fault of the film, I think, and the representation of suicidality. In real world cases of suicidal feelings and suicide attempts, there will very often be real world events playing into those feelings. So it's not necessarily just a person's internal world and their mental health that's responsible for those feelings. It's often, not always, but it is often triggered by external forces such as financial difficulties. In the real world, even if we manage to talk ourselves out of an attempt, or even if we don't reach the point of an attempt, but we feel suicidal because of those events, it's unlikely that the solution will just drop into our lap. But this is what happens in It's a Wonderful Life. George returns home with this newfound sense of gratitude and appreciation for his life. He doesn't know how he's going to solve his problems, but guys, don't worry, I will figure it all out. I'm feeling great. Oh my God, I feel manic with happiness. And like immediately afterwards... It looks like it's going to all go to pot and there are people there to arrest him or some kind of shit is going to go down. And then by some Christmas miracle, everyone in town turns up at the house and like piles a load of money at his feet and says, thank you for all the help you've given us over the years. We're going to like monetarily thank you for all the contributions that you made to our lives over the years. And it's like, oh my God, the answer to all of our prayers right at the moment when we most needed it. And it's beautiful. It's very moving. Like I said, it moves me to tears every time I see it. But guys, it's a film. I get it's a film. and We need to suspend our disbelief. But in terms of representation, I feel like that does very, a lot of people a big disservice. Like a lot of people who feel suicidal, it's for genuine reasons. It's for valid reasons. And it's a disservice to say that those problems can just be solved overnight. On the good hand, on the on the one hand, Mary, his wife, goes and gathers all these people. So she is making the effort to go and find the solutions. And this is a positive message because it reinforces that fact that even if we can't see the answer right in front of us, even if we don't know what the solution is, other people can help, which is why it's important to talk about issues and to, to reach out and all these other things because we might not be the solution to our problems. It might come from externally. And that's a really positive part of this representation. But the fact that it's resolved in like the last 30 seconds to a minute of the film and just like that he's not suicidal anymore and just like that everything's going to be okay. Ah, I don't know. It's, again, I just find it problematic because they did such a good job of leading up to the drama, the drama, the drama and then the solution. And I get it's, it's storytelling structure. It's a film. This is so often how things are resolved. It's like, oh, drama, drama, drama. Uh, and it's fixed. But for me, I think a more positive representation could be just a suggestion that things could be better, like something a lot more subtle. So the fact that Mary walks back in and says, we're going to figure this out, we'll get there, you and me. And it's just, you know, the film could end with her acknowledging and seeing that he's suicidal or seeing that he's at a really low ebb and just having that turning point for them together as a couple to say, there's hope, there's a little bit of hope, because I think so much more often in real life, that is the key message we need to get across to people who are feeling suicidal. We just need to hold on to that thin chance of hope. We don't know the whole solution. We don't have the whole solution in front of us. 
but we need to believe that things can get better. And even if a, a tiny 1% of our brain believes that, that can be enough. But in It's a Wonderful Life, it's like, oh, congratulations, you've decided not to kill yourself. All of your problems will be solved and served up to you in a beautiful finale. And yeah, it's a beautiful Christmas film. I fully recommend it to everyone listening. I really do. But in terms of representation of suicidality, is it positive? There are positives. There are real positives. And particularly for the time in which it was made and released, I think it was incredibly progressive for its time. But we do need to be critical of it and think, with our current understanding of suicidality and what we know now, is it a helpful text? And obviously, that's not the reason it was made. That's not the reason it was produced. But I think it is important that we break it down a little bit. So what can we learn from all of this? Well, it's possible to ruin any film. <laughs> it really is. And I, I'm i a bugger for overanalyzing things and overthinking things. But like I said at the beginning, I think it is important to break down representation of things that matter, whether that's suicidality, race, issues of gender. All of these things matter because they are a massive part of a lot of our lives. And if we're seeing representations on screen that are not truly indicative of the the truth as we live it, that can be very damaging, especially when these substandard representations um, kind of enter the public consciousness and people deem them as the norm or the truth. It can be really damaging. So on the one hand, I'm extremely grateful that It's a Wonderful Life exists. I, I, I think it's a beautiful film and it really taps into such a relatable theme of despair and heartache and disappointment and where that can lead you and I think it's it's handled in a very sympathetic way we love George we don't judge him for wanting to die um we wish he doesn't do it and then our wish is granted along with his family and friends you know it's a beautiful story that a lot of us can get involved in and you know just having suicide featured on screen in the 40s was was huge and maybe it opens that conversation for more of us I don't know I've never had a conversation with anyone about it until very recently and I was like hey don't, isn't it strange that it's a wonderful life has a suicide in it it's just yeah it's, it's a very wholesome Christmas film featuring suicide I, I love that dichotomy of like the merriment of Christmas and the perceived like beautiful pureness of Christmas with a suicide smack bang in the middle of it and um I think that can only be a good thing on the whole but yeah, when we break it down, there are lots of things to take from this. There are lots of lessons to learn. And I think the biggest one for me is that we need to not work just on the representation of suicide, but on the quality of that representation. We need to represent lots of different aspects of it, lots of different people's stories, true and fictionalized. I think this one is a really good example of showing the, the thinking process but not so much at dealing with the aftermath of like, oh, what happens after an attempt? How do we feel after an attempt? What can happen? It was so far removed from reality from that point onwards. And there are these different stages of a suicide. There's the thinking process, there's the attempt, there's the after effects. Like these are all different elements that we can explore, not just in popular culture, but in, you know, the conversations that we have and the resources that we use and the education and all the things. <laughs> So I hope you found that conversation interesting. I'd like to do this breakdown of more representations in popular culture. I think there's probably some extremely inflammatory representations in soaps I could go into. And someone suggested, um, my partner actually suggested an episode of The Simpsons, which I vaguely recall 
where Homer's trying to kill himself, but I cannot remember the specifics of how it was represented. So um, thank you to Steve for putting the idea in my head of this like popular culture breakdown. Uh, it might even become a mini-series, I'm not sure. But let me know if you'd like me to analyse any particular representations and uh, put them on a scale of problematic to hunky-dory. For now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd need any suicide support, resources, that kind of thing, there's a few places linked in the show notes. If you go to this episode, there's a little bit of writing to support the episode to tell you what it's about. Click see more and you'll see those resources there, including a list of international suicide hotlines. So people you can ring whatever country you're listening to this to, because previously I only had UK ones. So I want to represent everyone listening in other countries. Spotify tells me there are at least 20 countries listening. So hello to my listeners who are outside of the UK. It's doubly lovely to have you here because it's it's weird to think that I record these episodes in my little room in Manchester and it can stretch around the world. That's very cool to me. But all that's left to say is, I mean, I'm recording this in December. It's very close to Christmas. So if you are celebrating any kind of holidays at this time of year, I wish you very merry holidays and all the rest of it. And just a closing note to look after yourself and others. I think particularly with It's a Wonderful Life, that's one of the key messages is to look out for other people, but also to take really, really good care of yourself and prioritise your well-being and your happiness. So please do check out those resources if you need them over the festive period or any time in the future. Just save them. Save them for future reference. Put them somewhere visible where you can get to them and where other people can find them as well. And I will look forward to talking to you in the new year in the next episode take care love you lots thank you for listening to solving suicide today if you enjoyed it please consider leaving a review so we can reach more people or send this episode to someone you think could benefit from it if you'd like to feedback to me you can email me at talk at darkcoffee.co.uk special thanks to my collaborators who've helped make solving suicide possible all of their information plus any resources mentioned in today's podcast will be linked in the show notes And thank you again for being here. It really helps us to normalise the conversation around suicide.